I care desperately about what I do. Do I know what product I'm selling? No. Do I know what I'm doing today? No. But I'm here, and I'm going to give it my best shot. TGIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. TGIF, I'm Gary Mans. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. We are Manson Mitchell here together in your ears for the hour. Mighty glad to be there. Glad, as always, to be working with our buddy, bad boy, Benny Mathers at the board. How are you doing today, sir? Oh, wow. It's so good to see you. Oh, wow. It's <laughs> the best Owen I could do. Best. Yes, that's it. That's all right. Good, all Owen. right, I'll work on it. Owen. We'll take we'll take that, Owen. <laughs> Better than I can do. <laughs> oh wow, that's great. Oh wow. <laughs> we are here today on the cusp of Valentine's Day, which uh, formerly I would have been inclined to call one of those Hallmark holidays, just a sell greeting cards. <laughs> now <laughs> that's the- good. Now that one was good. Grandpa Simpson. <laughs> yeah. and, and with each passing year, it's easier to do that for some reason. <laughs> so you're going to crush it from here on out. <laughs> That's right. So um, it's, it's great. Suzanne and I have our, uh, we decided we were going to be a little proactive this time. Don't any of you out there, those of you who've been in a relationship, perhaps you've been married a long time. Suzanne and I have been together 20 years now. And I thought, you know, we have to stop this fooling around on Valentine's Day. If we talk about going to dinner, we're going to do this. We need to be considerate of each other, of ourselves, and what we've built for 20 years by <laughs> actually making a dinner reservation a few days in advance so that not, we're not standing out in the parking lot with the rest of the riffraff trying to get in there. <laughs> and so we called, and they had 7 p.m., nice romantic hour for dinner and our favorite booth. They said, we'll keep our eye out for you. We can't reserve the booth, but we know who you are and we'll hopefully have you seated there. So this is all to the good. And it's a part of creating your own destiny. It's a part of accepting who you are. How do you present yourself to the world? Suzanne and I, do we have to fake it till we make it in being a happy couple? No, because we're a relatively happy couple. Everybody has their issues. You have an issue, and there's something I will say about this. Maybe our guest, Charlie Serafin, who's going to be with us in a moment, will have something philosophical to say, because he usually does. But the whole idea, people say, yeah, you know, my wife or my husband, my boyfriend, this, that, and the other. Or on the other hand, they might be single. They might be, as I once was for quite a while in the pre-Suzanne era, where I am lovelorn. Wow, this loneliness stuff, this being single is overrated. And it dawned on me one day. There are two problems regarding relationships. One is not having one, and the other is being in one. And so it's like a Zen koan. You get to deal with that. This is your life. This is your work. This is your opportunity to discover who you are individually as well as in a relationship. And I just think, Charlie. You are so waxing poetic today. When did you stop being (laughs) you? That's the name of a book by Charles Charlie, to his friends, Charlie Serafin, when did you stop being you in search of your personal brand? And the use of that word brand in and of itself is a subject of some curiosity with us. So uh, having read the book, we want to present it and Charlie in a way where a lot of these concepts are explained in a very down-to-earth way. That's the kind of wisdom you can put to use right away. I love that. Shall I do the mad props? Sure. 
Charlie Serafin is an author, keynote speaker, award-winning broadcaster, and marketing professional. Recognized by the Associated Press, Radio TV News Directors Association, National Association of Broadcasters, and the National Headliners Club. As a journalist, Charlie covered thousands of stories and interviewed countless newsmakers. He successfully managed news departments, major market radio stations, and professional sports organizations. He inspires audiences from coast to coast with his wit, humor, and common sense, which isn't always so common, I found. His focus on decisions and how to incorporate personal values into everyday life are presented in a gentle yet powerful voice. We've had him on once before. We're doing it again. The powerful Charlie Serafin. Charlie, how's everything going in Arizona? Well, I have no idea. Who is that person you're talking about? <laughs> Charlie, we really looked forward to having you on again. We had you on for your first book, One Stupid Mistake, Smart Decision-Making in a Crazy World. Gary and I really appreciated your down-to-earth common sense. And when you sent When Did You Stop Being You, we were eager to get into that book as well. And we were actually very surprised because you either didn't talk about it or we didn't remember that you actually went to a monastery for a couple of weeks. What a great story. And I thought, you know, there's so much that we want to talk about from your book, but I think that is really kind of going to lay the foundation today for our listeners. Two weeks in a monastery and what happened? Well, it was actually two weeks in a monastery turned into seven months in a monastery. So it right. was a, it was a right. long stay. Um, I, I, everybody hits a bump on the road. And I'm sure that every single person listening can relate to the idea that things don't always go your way. There are circumstances that uh, occur that cause pain. And sometimes we get really down and out and depressed. And after the last 18 months to two years, I think there's probably more people going through that than there were uh, previously. So I hit one of those bumps in the road a number of years ago. And I was really despondent. I was angry. I was angry at everyone around me, the people who tried to console me. I pushed them away. And I talked to a friend who was really wise and, and caring. And he said, maybe you should go on a retreat. And I went, well, I've never been on a retreat. I don't know anything about it. And he said, well, I know, I know somebody who knows somebody. And he made a couple of phone calls and they said, okay, they're expecting you at this monastery in the mountains in, in New Mexico, in Pecos, New Mexico. So I jumped in the car, rode off, <laughs> not knowing what was on the other end. I went into the, to the building, the reception area, and the abbot came out. He, he said, we heard you were coming. And he said, uh, it's pretty, uh, pretty basic here. Um, just you can stay as long as you need to stay. And um, we do a lot of praying and we do a lot of meditating and we do a lot of quiet time and uh, welcome. And we also do chores and everybody who comes and stays with us, you know, we like them to participate. And I said, well, I have no issue with any of that. So here we go. So I, for the first two weeks, I pretty much, I had a little room that I stayed in kind of like a motel room with a bed and a small desk and a, a shower, a sink and a toilet. And um, it was it was quiet time. I found that they got up early. They were in chapel at seven o'clock in the morning and they prayed. And I thought that it was very interesting. They're a wonderful group of people. 
and it was really just the monks and me for uh, quite a long you know period for most of the week i guess the first week and a half or so and then people started to filter in every once in a while someone would come for a day or two and then they would leave and somebody else would come and at the end of the two weeks um i said this is wonderful <laughs> you know i'm really i'm really i think i'm benefiting from this and and they said well if you'd like to stay longer you're welcome to stay longer and i i had some business to attend to so i left for a little bit and i went back and when I went back, uh, they welcomed me with open arms, and I really I lived with the monks uh, in the in the cloistered part of the monastery, and I spent the better part of seven months all told, just um, doing a lot of reflection. In your book, you said that after two weeks, you came out to get back into the real world, and you said it wasn't my time. So you, you, you came out for a couple of weeks to kind of reintegrate back into um, the, your everyday familiar world of, you know, fast cars and people in a hurry. And then you concluded that you actually needed the more quiet time. And it's interesting that you went from two weeks to six months. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that was quite a long stretch. Were you planning to stay six months? No, I wasn't even planning to stay two weeks, honestly. When I, when I got there, as I said, I was, I was in the midst of uh, a depression. Um, I, I was really down. I was angry about pretty much everything. And I was kind of lost. And because I, I hope everyone has at least one honest to goodness good friend that they, they can count on. And my friend said, you need to get away. You need to get out of town. You need to go someplace quiet. You need to, and here's a good place. And after I got there, I started feeling a connectedness, um, I guess in a spiritual vein, with a lot more than what the, the normal, my work patterns had been and, and my life had been up to that point. And I, I, every day I learned a lot. And there were, there were, there were just thousands of little I call them little miracles you know, that were kind of like, uh, you know, when your brain fires and, and a, an idea or a concept becomes really clear for the first time, even though you've heard it many times before. And I felt like it was a, a really um, a, 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 a second coming, you know, a coming out or whatever, but I, just a rediscovery of, of who I am when, and why I'm here and what I'm all about. And um, I went back in and I worked, you know, in the, in the workaday world after my time in the monastery for a number of years. But I started writing essays, which became the first book, uh, One Stupid Mistake. And then um, over the next, actually, it took three years, um, I wrote the second book. And it's a real simple, short book, as you know. But I, uh, it has a lot of, um, I, I put a lot of heart into it. And I think that it's, it's been just really well received by pretty much everybody. And if you guys want to rip it apart and tell me what's wrong with it, I'm good with that too. So we can go there. Oh, uh, no. I don't There's think, no ripping. I, I don't think that's what we had planned for today. I mean, it's, it's not that I don't, don't, speaking of Schitt's Creek, there were we? I didn't know where uh, I, I may have a few rippers, but I'm not going to use them on Charlie Saravin. He's a friend. We are curious about one thing, Charlie. I'm, I will throw this at you because I know you've got something to say about this. Your okay. subtitle and the title of the book again is, is When Did You Stop Being You? The 
the subtitle of which is In Search of Your Personal Brand. When I hear the word brand, Charlie, I think, okay, this is how to market yourself. But you're not too far into reading the book when you realize that this is not your intention at all. No. And, and I think uh, one of the things I did, and I, I challenge our listeners to do it today, if you go online and just um, type in uh, personal brand or personal branding, you will see that there are literally thousands of people who purport to be personal brand experts. And so I, I went to their websites and I, I went to dozens of them and they all pretty much say the same thing. You have to project a consistent image across all platforms. So they're really working in the digital world and they're saying that in order for your personal brand to be successful, you have to have a story and you have to tell that same story over and over again, whether it's on Twitter or Facebook or Snapchat or what, you know, all of the, all the platforms that you might be on LinkedIn and so on and so forth. And I thought about it and I thought, well, that's not, that doesn't make any sense because projecting an image is really more about advertising that's not what your brand is. Your brand has a completely different meaning. So I, I went in to tell a, a quick story, you know, the, the history of the concept of brands started pre-industrial age when people made things and they put their name on it because it was representative of the best that they could do. It was there if they made a knife or they made a sword or they made a, 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 a plow or whatever it was, if they put their name on it, that, that was something special to them. And then the customers, the people who ultimately use those products, um, come, came to trust them or not. You know, if, it, if the knife broke after one use, then they didn't buy any more Smith knives. You know, they went looking for Bowie knives or whatever kind of knife was uh, a better brand. And I, I use that concept to say, if, you, if it's your brand, it really needs to have more to do with your values than some false image that you're projecting or somebody that you're pretending to be. I wanted to get into some things that we have not talked about before with other guests that are unique to your book. But where I was starting was really that you do uh, say something that we have talked about before and that is the sense about people not knowing who they are. My, my old grandmother used to have a phrase when she saw somebody acting up and it was, you know, he needs to get next to himself. She needs to get next to herself. She had this little, little phrase that it took me a while to figure out. And what I have said on air more than one time is that, when people are acting inconsistent with their absolute, pure, born, divine selves, it just seems like they don't know who they are. And, I, and I, you talk about that in the beginning of the book, is that there are so many influences telling us who we are, we kind of lose sight of that. And a few minutes ago, you talking, you, you said in going to the monastery, it was about rediscovering who I am. And, and I think, don't we kind of lose sight of that pretty early on? Yeah. And that's the, and I think that's the motivation for me is to try to help other people 
through a series of really simple, uh, you know, approaches to different subjects, everything from laughing to friends and relationships and all those things. But um, especially now in this digital age that we're living in, the technology is wonderful. Look what we're doing. We can see each other across the miles and we can talk across the miles and we we can communicate. We can send a, a message to someone on the other side of the world, a matter of seconds. And that's all really neat stuff. But what's lost is that is the that we we start to get carried away with the images that are that are false that is not really who we are like your grandmother said you know you need to get next to yourself another way of saying the same thing is when you just stop being you um, if you can't if you can't identify your values and 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 then a lot of people can't because they don't think about them. You know, when if you go through a whole day and you haven't spent one minute thinking about what's really important to you, what your values are, what you care about, what your belief structure is, then that's kind of a lost day. But if you think about it and you say, okay, and I, I, I put some exercises in and say, okay, write down what you believe, you know, call it your creed or whatever you want to call it, but start the sentence with, I believe, and then write some things that you believe in that are that are that you hold really dear and then you ask two questions why do i believe that where did that come from is it just innate is it something that's within me that uh, that makes me believe that or did someone i trust tell me that or did i see it on tv or in a movie you know wherever it doesn't matter i'm not judging but okay where did it come from and then the next part is do i live my life to exhibit my belief in that that i have expressed as my belief Am I, am what I'm saying and doing consistent? Are those things consistent with, with what I really believe? And if they're not, well, we got some work to do. You got a little adjustment to do. Um, if they are, if your values are reflected in your speech and your values are reflected in your actions, then you're on the right track. And that's a, that's a really good thing. You're, and, and you know what, uh, Suzanne and Gary, if, when you meet people like that, you're immediately attracted to them. Because you think it's the same thing. When you meet a phony, you go, oh, my goodness, <laughs> that person needs to get next to themselves, right? Because they're, they're, right. not, they're not really um, connected to who they are. And it's, it's really obvious. But when you mm -hmm. meet people that are absolutely authentic, what you see is what you get. Whether you agree with them necessarily or whether you get along with them or whether you have a relationship with them, somehow you're attracted to those people because there's something that's very honest about who they are. And I think that's, that's really important for all of us to try to, to try to become those people so that we can all, um, we can all get along because again, it's not about necessarily agreeing on everything or having exactly the same values or the same beliefs, but it's about being authentic with ourselves. And if you don't start with you, you're going to have a hard time communicating with the rest of the world. Puts me in mind of asking you, Charlie, when you had this experience, I would describe it as a long experience, a lengthy experience there at the monastery. And kudos to you for doing that, you know, and then leaving and coming back again. That's an extraordinary experience for a non-monastic person, someone who is not self-described as an ascetic to go through, to experience fully. When you were there, Charlie, was there anyone you met, and there were times when there wasn't a lot of talking going on, you had to, I guess, gesture so that somebody would pass the salt at the dinner table. That's a challenge unto itself. But did you talk to any of these gentlemen who were in a monastic setting who may have communicated to you that 
I kind of wonder sometimes what it would be like to be a married man. What if it, what's life like on the outside? Did you sense any of that? Almost the opposite. Um, and it was really interesting because I think they, they all had lived on the outside at some point. They all had backstories and it was kind of like pulling teeth to get them to share them, but a number of them did. And they shared really interesting stories about how they came to choose a monastic life and live there. But the, the, I guess the biggest takeaway that I had, which I, I was not conscious of at all, and after I saw it and experienced it, I went, wow, that is so amazing. But there are literally thousands of people on this planet right now who are praying for us because that's their number one job. That's their number one focus is to pray for everybody who's not there with them at the monastery. And they literally from morning until night, their work is a prayer. Um, their music is, is a prayer. Their, their, you know, their services are prayers. Their walks in the, in the forest are prayers. Everything is a prayer to them. And, and it's always offered for the intention of other people, not for themselves. They don't pray, you know, because they're monks, they don't pray, oh, God, give me a new Cadillac next month kind of thing, or, oh, God, help with the mortgage payment, because they're not caught up in those things of the world now. They at one time were, but they are so focused on praying for the well-being of all the rest of us that when I, even though I'm not there anymore, I can still, I can still feel that, you know, it's like, it, it's, they're just really, really, really special people. And the other thing is the way they behave toward one another, there are differences of, of opinion. You know, some people like to set the, I remember a Seder dinner. This is a classic example. And there were, there were men and women at this monastery. The women had separate quarters and the men had separate quarters, but they came together for meals and whatnot. But they were doing a Seder dinner and a celebration of Passover, which I found really interesting. And the woman was, women see the world differently than men do. So the woman was setting the tables and setting it up. And the, the, the man who was the chef, the monk who was the chef came out and went, you know, I could see him. He kind of put his heads up, hands up in the air, like a chef would do, you know, and going, no, this is not what I envisioned. And, and she said, well, you know, this is what I, and then immediately he caught himself and he said, no let's do it your way. And she said, Oh, no, 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 let's do it your way. And the two of them had this, this back and forth mm -hmm. about who could conceive the quickest, because they both realized that the thing that they were about to have a disagreement about had no relevance or bearing on what they were doing at all. And so it was, it was so powerful. And I see that image all the time. It's tough to imitate it in the real world, because you have an opinion and you and, and Suzanne have a great relationship, Gary, you just talked about it and Valentine's Day, which is a Hallmark greeting card holiday. Um, <laughs> you know, you, you have disagreements from time to time, you see things differently. But what in a in a true spiritual sense, you the the monks got by it in a matter of seconds. I mean, it was so instantaneous. And I, I'll just never forget that image. And that I think that's what we could imitate is like, don't sweat the petty stuff. There's so much petty stuff going on that we get all wrapped up in, and it's really not important. 
very wise words. And Charlie, you'll be reassured to know that that Alphonse and Gaston act that was going on in the kitchen. No, you first. No, let's go your way. Your way. No, you first. No, you first. We live that in Seattle by going to four-way stops. <laughs> and you're in your car going, no, after you. No, go ahead. No, no, you go first. You were here. How about you? You go ahead. We'll wait. <laughs> and they sit there and they're they're found years later dead in their cars at the same damn intersection. <laughs> well, I, I, you know what's great about that example, though, is it, it's a practical example on how we can exhibit that type of behavior. And it's a little thing, but it's just like, don't rush to be first. Or if you come to the door at the same time, hold the door for the other person. You yes. know, it's, it's, there are so many little things that we can do, which at a monastery, they do instinctively because that's their focus. That's their life. They're, they're, they live their lives for the betterment of the world and for others, not for personal gain. And I'm a capitalist. I've been a businessman, you know, most of my life. I worked in broadcasting. You know, I tried to get ratings. We tried to get revenues. We, you know, we got all that stuff. But the reality is those aren't the most important things. There's a lot more important stuff out there that, that we can focus on. But we have to start with ourselves. And Suzanne, at the beginning, you sort of mentioned, or I guess Gary did too, but the idea is in today's culture, when something goes wrong, the first reaction of most people is to blame someone or something else. It wasn't my fault. If it hadn't been raining or, you know, if my, if my partner hadn't said this or done that, then, you know, and, and that's where we go. We go down that rabbit hole every time to sort of, what are we protecting? I'm not exactly sure, but the reality is you have to start with personal responsibility. And pretty much everything that happened, every once in a while, something comes at you from the outside that you weren't prepared for, and you have to deal with it. But your reaction to it and all of the decisions that you make are yours and yours alone. And you can't blame somebody else. And if you're in the habit of blaming other people, you uh, you need to uh, read the book. <laughs> you know, <it'll, laughs> that would be, that's good advice. We're going to talk about two things right after the break, very illustrative of what uh, Charlie Serafin just said. And we'll have probably more stuff besides. And more. We're halfway through. When did you stop being you? In Search of Your Personal Brand. It's a book by Charlie Serafin. He is our honored guest of this hour. We will get into more of the metaphysical and philosophical weeds of this wonderful concept. As soon as we come back, give us a couple of minutes. We're Manson Mitchell, and you are tuned in to Seattle's home of Alternative Talk, AM 1150. Colleen Foy Bolin is offering an exclusive Zoom class on savoring life's spiritual moments, Saturday, March 5, from 10 a.m. to noon. This Zoom class shows you how the sacred art of storytelling moves you forward on your path and brings inspiration to others. Your everyday experiences can transform into life-changing events when looked at in a new way through Colleen's creative exercises. You'll discover that enlightenment grows in your own backyard. Colleen is offering this two-hour class at the very affordable price of $20. To register, go to sarasotacenteroflight.com. That's sarasotacenteroflight.com. Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days, and I'm so excited to tell you about American Road. It is the best car travel magazine in the world. They have the most fantastic adventures detailed in each magazine with all your itinerary. We could just jump in the car with your family 
and have the most fabulous adventures you've ever had in your life. Please get a copy of American Road and start your own adventure. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed Charlie Serafin, who asks the question, when did you stop being you? We will go searching for your personal brand in this crazy world. On Saturday, Catherine Alice returns for her pre-Valentine's weekend visit with her personal message, which is love will find you. It's not about tips and tricks. It's a way of life. Bringing you mastery and mystery since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk AM 1150. Alternative Talk 1150, here to uplift your day. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our guest this hour, Charlie Serafin. We're talking about Charlie's second book, When Did You Stop Being You in Search of Your Personal Brand? And we have interviewed him before on his first book, One Stupid Mistake, Smart Decision Making in a Crazy World. If people want to look up more information about you, Charlie Serafin, where's the best place for them to do that? Uh, you can go on pretty much any of the search sites and it will pop up something. My The website that I use is still One Stupid Mistake, um, but I'm not a very good web tender, so I'm, I, I don't okay. uh, update it as often as I should. Um, there's a charlieserafin.com uh, website as well. You can check that out. It's a, uh, I, I think uh, for the second book, I've probably uh, sold a thousand copies. Okay, that are out there in circulation. And mm -hmm. it's pretty much a kind of a viral thing, I guess. Mm. I, um, I, you know, I don't, I don't put a lot of energy into uh, self promotion, into the marketing, yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. I, it's, it's, it's not, it's not my comfort we'll, zone. For sure. Well, we'll promote it. We'll promote yeah. it for you. Well, I appreciate Good that. Book. I, I, Good like, book. I got an, I got an email this morning. Uh, Suzanne, yeah. I think is appropriate. So yeah. this, this is the kind of thing that I get not every day, but I've gotten enough to feel good about it. So it says, I enjoyed your new book. I passed it on to my 35 year old son, who is in the process of rebuilding his life as a recovering heroin addict. He is in the last semester studying to be a drug alcohol rehab counselor. I told him there are a number of ideas in your book that he may find inspirational. Mm. 
So that's my, that's the payback for me. Yeah. I don't expect to be a New York times bestseller. I don't, I didn't write with that intention and, and I doubt that it would ever happen. But I, I think there are, I've gotten so many from both books. I've gotten so many uh, personal correspondence from people who say that something in the book, some word, some phrase, some paragraph, some chapter touched them in a way to allow them to do some reconstructive work on who mm -hmm. they are. And that's a wonderful feeling. You know, if, if you have a legacy, that would be, that would be my legacy. Just for our listeners, uh, I want to spell your name. Charlie ends in I-E and Seraphin is S-E-R-A-P-H-I-N, just in case you're writing that down. I know I've written down things wrong before and it makes it harder to find. I wanted to go back to a couple things that I said before the break. You were telling a story which was very illustrative of two things that you mentioned in your book. And this is going to lead us into the second half of the interview and, and the other things that we want to talk about. In your book, you talk about um, one way to really get back to rediscovering who you are and being honest and consistent with how you with the image that you're portraying is to consciously direct your thoughts and activities. And you talked about that. The other thing, which you didn't address directly, but I would like you to now is how people confuse their emotions and their thoughts with who they are. How, do, how does that confusion come about? Well, people say that all the time. They say, I'm depressed. And the, and the reality is, no, you're not depressed. You're feeling depressed. And your feelings and even your thoughts, uh, you know, when you have negative self-thought, that's not who you are. That, that It's not a representative thing. And I guess the, 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 the corollary to that is that a lot of people say, I can't quiet my mind. You know, I just keep thinking all these things. I can't sleep at night because I have so many things going through my mind. Well, mm -hmm. Uh, here, well, here's a wake up for you. You're in charge. <laughs> it's your mind. And you can consciously direct your thoughts. So your thoughts and your feelings are, let's say uh, somebody disappoints you. They do something that really hurts your feelings and you're, and you're sad about it. Okay. So you be, go, I'll say, okay, I'm feeling kind of sad. All right. Now you have the power to say, okay, I'm not going to be sad anymore. I'm going to move on and I'm going to I'm, I'm not going to let it consume me. I'm going to move on and I'm going to think about um, doing something really nice for somebody else or for maybe for that same person. So you have the ability to control your life. You're not a victim here. You're not just at the mercy of, of, the, of the clouds and the well, whatever. At mercy of the feelings, Charlie. Because when you, when you have those negative feelings going on, when you're angry, when you're upset, when you're depressed, when you're sad. I mean, all that stuff is, is all the feelings we, we really think, well, that's who I am. Yeah. It feels, it feels, say no. sometimes. Yeah. it feels like it's real. Like, Oh, wow. Those, that's really real. It's not real. It's just, a, it's another construct of your, of either your conscious or your subconscious mind, but you have the ability with your conscious mind to change that feeling. And it's as easy as, as flipping on a light switch. It's dark in here. It's really dark in here. I'm scared. I feel like it's really dark in here. Well, hit the switch. 
turn the light on and it's not dark in here anymore. Oh, I don't have to be afraid. And it's, it's, it really is as simple as that. And we don't, we don't see it because we get caught up in, in not being conscious really. Yep. Philosophically, Charlie, do you recall where and when you got that thought? You just articulated it beautifully. Turn on the light switch. It's dark in there. This involves the darkness that comes of a failure to understand, or maybe our thinking is crooked in some way. It doesn't make us crooked people. It means that we think some crooked thoughts and we get ourselves into and out of trouble. Where did you find that philosophy first expressed? I think probably when I bounced off the bottom. You know, when I got so carried away with my own BS and went like, man, oh man, I, I am, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm miserable. I'm, I'm awful, miserable, <laughs> terrible, you know, all, all the negatives. And then all of a sudden it was like, well, wait a minute, that's, that's not real. No, it's not. It's not who I am. That's not, I don't have to be that person. And I don't remember a specific instance but, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a constant, Gary. It's not a one-time fits all, I've solved the problem forever. Because as I said, we're all flawed. We, all, we go through the same things. It's, it's not to say that I don't get angry. But you know what? When I get angry now, it doesn't last very long at all. Because all of a sudden, I'm, I have an awareness. Oh, I'm, being ang- I'm, I'm feeling anger. I don't have to feel that anymore. So I'll let that go. And whatever the, I'm feeling depressed, I'm feeling hurt, I'm feeling whatever those negatives are, you don't have to feel them. And I, I'm training myself as I go through life, not nirvana, I'm not there yet. I'm not at that nirvana state, like most of the monks seem to be, although I'm sure they have the same feelings. We all have them. It's just that we just, we don't, you don't have to identify with them. And if you spend a little time thinking about your values and your beliefs and what you care about most, you're going to have a much easier time with that transition from the dark to the light. I thank you for that, Charlie. I could see you in ancient Athens on the little corner where the Stoics stood and they preached their philosophy. And it was a philosophy less about the nature of reality, though they may have had an opinion or two. For the Stoics, there and you you evoke them with the things you say. It was about how do I adjust to the life that I have? However I perceive it, what am I doing in relation to life generally and others particularly with whom I share this space at the same time? Very well said. I wanted to uh, bring up something very, very practical. When we talk to people about um, prayer, about meditation, about you know various things that they can do to kind of smooth the way forward, there's some um, pushback, you know, I don't know how to pray. I, I can't meditate. I, I tried once and I, I, I don't know how to meditate, but you have something in your book that I thought was super practical. And Gary and I were talking about it earlier. You call it the remembering exercise. What, what does that involve? Well, just remembering. And if, if you, well, first of all, if you, if you budget a little bit of time in your day, every day, just a little bit of time, start with five minutes and you say, well, I'm so busy. I don't have time for this, that, and the other. Yeah. Find five minutes and make it a regular part of your schedule, uh, program it into your phone. It says it says timeout or whatever, give it a name, whatever you want to call it. But if you take a little bit of time, 
it, it's a it's a part of this consciousness thing about being really aware of where you are in space and time and who you are and not what you're feeling or any of that. So the remembering exercise is to say, okay, I'm going to, first of all, I'm going to remember yesterday. Okay. What happened yesterday? What was interesting happened? Okay. Now I'm going to remember last week if I can. And then I'm going to remember something maybe earlier in the year. Now I'm going to try to remember something from last year and I'm going to try to remember and you keep going back further in time. And if you, if you practice this exercise of just remembering, no, without, you don't have a, there's no end goal necessarily. You're not really trying to find any specific thing or change anything. It's just, I want to remember some things. And, and when you get to a spot, you say like, okay, how, what was I thinking at that time that I, that I'm remembering this thing happened? And what, what did I feel at that time? And I think what it does is it gives you perspective. So if you go to a real dark time, you know, the time that you came home and your, your, you know, spouse left a note and ran away with a, somebody else or whatever, you know, I was like, that's a pretty dark uh, recollection. Okay. How did I feel then? How did I react to that? How did, what did I do? What did, what, okay. And then at some point you'll get back and remember a time when you were totally at peace. You were so happy and something was just, it was like, maybe it was when you were a little kid and you had an ice cream cone and it was delicious and you've never had one that good again in your life or anything. But if you remember the good memories, then try to ask yourself, what did I think? What did I feel? How, how was that working for me then? And then how can I recreate that feeling? How can I recreate through that memory in a situation that is less desirable today. So it's just, it's, it's different for everybody. You don't have to do it with the purpose. As I say, it's not a, a, a specific exercise, but just spend a little time remembering and you remember the bad times, analyze them, remember the good times, analyze them and try to bring the good time feelings and thoughts into the present. I particularly like that exercise for the fact that it, I think there's no resistance to it the way there might be to prayer or meditation. It is much the same thing. And as you said, it doesn't really have to have a particular purpose in mind, but it was interesting that I have done that before where I did get to a couple of interesting places of, of earlier versions of myself, as you said, kind of going back, when you go back and back and back and back and back. In one story, when I was going back and back and back, uh, remembering various things, I, I remembered being very, very young. And this would be between like one and two years old. And I was being left with a babysitter as my parents, very, very dressed up, going out for a wonderful adult evening in their finest clothes and cologne and perfume. And my not wanting to be left with this strange person that I was being left with, I can remember going to the storm door, it had glass in it. And my parents, who went on the other side of the door, got swallowed up by the dark. And so there was this huge fear about the dark because the dark ate my parents. You don't have a way of 
saying to yourself when you're a year or two years old, oh, they're just going out to dinner and they'll be back in a while. What I saw was my parents getting swallowed up by the dark. I mean, so that was an image that kind of um, brought me up to speed today. The other thought that went to a much better earlier version of myself was in remembering past things, I remembered getting one of those $1, 12-inch balls that somebody gave me when I was, oh, six, seven, eight years old. And I threw it up into the air and I could see the ball getting smaller, 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 and then bigger, bigger, bigger. And I caught it. And I was pretty excited about that. And I tossed it up again, smaller, 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 bigger, 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 caught it again. And I can remember tossing this ball in the air quite a few times and thinking to myself, I better be careful because I could throw it so high that it wouldn't come back. It would actually go into outer space. And, and so here's an earlier version of myself feeling very powerful. You know, I got to be careful because I could really throw that ball high. And I think the remembering exercise can do those kinds of things for us where we remember earlier versions of ourselves. And it is both the good experiences and the bad experiences, but it kind of puts everything in context. Uh -huh. You know, it's like these things all happen to me. These are all part of my world. These are part of my experiences. And then it kind of says, I guess that's why I'm the way I am today about certain things. Yeah. And, and I'm okay. You know, I'm okay. And I'm going to be okay because I, because they, they just give you perspective. And too often we're just so busy. We're going so fast and we're doing so many things and we got so much stuff going on and everything. We don't ever stop to just just get a sense of who we are and where we are and what our purpose is. And our purpose is, is really unique and special because we're all so different. What wonderful uh, remembrances you have. And I, I, uh, I hope everybody will do that a little bit. Just try to remember, you know, remember. Just back. Yeah. It doesn't have to be sitting in meditation. Am I holding my fingers right? Are my legs crossed properly? I can't empty my mind out. Yeah. My mind's still going on and on, blah, 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 blah. You might not meditate. You might not know how to pray, but you can sit and remember things and yeah. remember an earlier time and then an earlier time and then an earlier time. And I think that is a form of prayer and meditation and quieting the mind. So I wanted to bring that up because I, I thought that was a really great thing from your book. So thank you. Th yeah. Thank you for that exercise, Gary. We wanted to talk to Charlie about destiny. Oh, should yes, I, should I read this paragraph and then we'll talk about it? Why not? Gary has a question and I'm going to read a paragraph from your book, page 104. Each of us has a calling. There's a quiet little voice inside that regularly reminds us that our time and place on earth is not accidental. Too often we suppress those feelings. We ignore the quiet little voice as it nags at us from deep inside. Cynics will tell us that it doesn't matter. They'll try to convince you that there's no rhyme or reason, purpose, or destiny. They'll tell you to live for today and collect as much as you can, because when you're dead and gone, none of what you did in this life will matter. Harry said, ooh, I want to talk about that. And we got a good lead in from Charlie himself a moment ago. Who am I? Where am I? 
And what is my purpose? What is my purpose for being here at this time? In one of your incarnations as a newsman, you were confronted with someone who could have very passionately, perhaps articulately answered that question. His name was David Koresh. Now, when you were back there, were you in Dallas at that time? You were working in yeah. radio news. Yes. There, when you were there and that was happening, there was a time, Branch Davidian, does anyone recall that? There was a time when David Koresh led the news for nights in a row. You wanted to know what was happening there in Waco, Texas. From your perspective, and I know we talked about this the first time you were with us, but it's been a while. Please encapsulate what that experience was like for you and how anything going on in that situation would lead you to conclude, at least philosophically and tentatively, as you have done in this book you just published. I was, uh, I, I was the, the general manager of the radio station that David Koresh chose as his window to the world. And so he called into the station the night, first night of the standoff, and I spoke to him on the phone for a long time, probably 45 minutes or so off the air. And then we went on the air with him and, and uh, tried to ascertain what was going on. But it was a, it was a real, it was a life and death situation. It was very intense. And I remember, Suzanne, I remember being really focused on the dangers associated with every utterance that came out of my mouth. So mm. I thought one thing could set this guy off because he was, uh, he had taken leave of what we would consider our traditional senses. He was a very strange person caught up in, in, a, in a very strange uh, series of actions. But I remember the cautiousness of approaching it. And I kept trying to focus on, um, David, you have children in there. We need to get those kids out. It's their bedtime. They're not a part of this. They shouldn't be involved in the, in the, you know, the problem you have with the federal government or with the people outside with the guns or you people with your guns inside and all that. You really need to get the kids out of harm's way. And during the course of our conversation, every 20 minutes, he released two more kids because we were, we were playing a, a thing on the air that he asked us to play that was uh, kind of like biblical gibberish, but it, it satisfied him at that moment. But it was a really, it was a really strange time. And afterwards, I think, you know, I'm really glad that I was the one in that situation because I felt that was where I was supposed to be. And I, yeah. I, I don't think I've ever shared that with anyone before. I, but, you know, every once in a while, you need to have that feeling. You need to say, like, I am really glad I was here, even if it's, if it's helping the old lady across the street or holding the door for someone or letting someone go at the four-way stop. Give yourself a little bit of credit for being who you are at that moment and doing the, the good thing, doing the right thing, um, being not so self-interested, but, but uh, a real a real human being, someone who cares about others. And, and uh, that was an opportunity for me. And, and thank goodness, I've had a lot of others since then, you know, a lot of times where I think like, oh, I'm really glad that I was able to do that. It's when you're doing nice things for other people are trying to help. So it was, a, that was a chapter. Yeah. And, and there have been others, but uh, <laughs> thanks. Thanks for remembering it. And a lot of people, a lot of people have no idea what we're talking about too. They're literally like David Koresh, Branch Davidians. I don't know about that. 
And we have a baby boomer audience, and I think a lot of people do remember that. Bill, early in Bill Clinton's presidency, the attorney general at the time, Janet Reno, these names come back in a flood of memories along with them, Charlie. Yeah. Yeah, that was a, that was a, that was what I would say a very focused, interesting time. And I, I went for about three days with almost no sleep. And I am a sleeper. I get my eight hours, you know, every night or in a chair if I have to, but I'm, I love to sleep. And it was so intense that I did not sleep for several days um, you know, I, or, or fitful sleep or the phone would ring and it was the FBI or the ATF or somebody and something else was going on. It was a really intense time. But uh, as I look back on it, I, the, the resolution of the situation was awful that so many people died in the fire, uh, which they did set themselves. And there's some controversy about that, but I've done a lot of research on it. Um, it was, it was, a, it was a tragic ending to a really, really strange story. But for some reason, God put me on the planet. God put me in that situation and God helped me. I believe, I I hope because I've listened back to some of the tapes to find just the right words to try to bring it to a a resolution. And we had a, we had a good resolution the first night after that. Not so much. Thank you very much for sharing that. Those are intimate memories and uh, they echo in history. So thank you, Charlie. Thank you. You, you write in the book, I missed the bus can either be a negative or a positive experience, depending on your attitude. I like to think that I'm exactly where I'm meant to be doing what I'm supposed to be doing. It's not good or bad, but the results are always interesting. I think that is such a good way for people to look at their own lives is, is not to judge it as good or bad, but just, well, this is interesting. And, and to know that they are where they are supposed to be when they're there. And what is it that's mine to do in this situation? And I, I just, I like that idea. And I was glad that you wrote about it. The book is, When Did You Stop Being There? In Search no, of No, When your, Did You Stop Being You? Oh, When Did You Stop Being You? In Search of Your Personal Brand. I was reading way too fast. <laughs> Charlie Serafin, S-E-R-A-P-H-I-N. Thank you for being with us today, Charlie. Great book and lots to talk about. And I'm glad you're getting some uh, good feedback on it. Excellent. Thank you, Susanna Gary. You're wonderful people. You know, I do a few interviews and you are two of the few people who actually do read the book and ask questions relevant to the book. <laughs> We've heard that before. <laughs> yes, we have. And always grateful to hear that too. Charlie Serafin, thank you, sir, so much. We will do this again. Thank you. All right. Coming up next. Coming up next is the Christine Up Church Show. And at one o'clock Pacific, American Road Trip Talk with host Gary Mance. Who have we got today? I have the wonderful Harriet Vasquez, and we're going to talk about quirky roadside animal art in the Pacific Northwest. Turns out there's plenty of it. So do join us. And in the meantime, have yourselves a wonderful weekend, everyone, and happy Valentine's Day in advance.